Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 2. I, the preacher, have been king over all Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I planted myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I planted in them I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had extended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. For the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master for all of which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For, the, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the fact that we get to come into your presence as your people, as your children, and to worship you. Lord, not to just hear the word preached or to sing songs about who you are and what you've done, not just to, to, to participate in prayer, but to realize that what is happening here is a relational exchange. And Father, you are stooping low to your stupid children, your unintelligent children, your foolish children to speak to them what we need to know. So Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to make known to us the truth of your word. We are so stubborn. Our hearts are so hard. And Lord, even if we understand, our hearts don't actually love you and the truth that you reveal to us. So even though we know it, we turn from it. So Lord, incline our hearts to you and to your word. Make the means of grace that we partake in this morning effectual. We cry out desperately, come and do this work. Because it's not just enough for us to be here. You must take the means of grace and, and pour your grace through them so that we can relate with you and know you and love you. So come and, and make this time not a time of vanity, a time of no profit, but may be profitable for us as we get to know you better. And Lord, we ask this all based on the merits of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, over the last few weeks as you've been um, reading the news or watching the news, you've been watching with uh, despair and disgust and hopefully some compassion as the story of a certain congressman's have transgressions have come to light. Hopefully our response is never, oh, I can't believe this guy, what a jerk he is. You know, I, I'm better than him. Because when we sit in disgust, we should sit in disgust of the sin. But when we look at it, we should say, man, all that he did, I'm capable of doing the exact same things. It's only the grace of God restraining me that I don't go and do exactly what he has done. 
But you know, as I looked at the story, and I've been following the story, one of the things that pops out to me is a very interesting truth. And that truth is that we as human beings often put off asking some of the most important questions we can ask about our existence as humans until our lives fall apart. It usually takes a tragedy for us to step back and say, man, what is this life all about? Why am I here? Why am I here? What's the point or the purpose or the end of human existence? Because you see, when things are good, we try to keep ourselves as busy as we possibly can, right? Activity after activity. We've got to have the, uh, the, um, our iPod on or the radio on or the TV on. We don't want to be able to just sit there and, and reflect on the consequences of how we're living our lives. We don't want to face up to reality. But then when a tragedy in our life comes around, in that moment, in that dark night of the soul, the reality comes to us face to face and we start to ask these questions. I can't help but think that this congressman is now asking himself those questions. The latest news is that he was just admitted um, to, to a place where he can get some psychological treatment. His whole world has fallen apart in, before his very eyes, all that he had. And so now I'm sure, hopefully, I'm praying, he's asking himself questions like, what's the point of human life? Why are we here? It's the most important question we can ask ourselves this morning. And if you're familiar at all with uh, the shorter Westminster Catechism, which I absolutely love and, and commend to you, go home and read it, the first question you know actually answers this question as to why we exist. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And it answers quite beautifully and I think biblically, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The reason that God created us, the express purpose for which God made us in his image is to glorify him, exalt him, make his worth known, and to enjoy being in relationship with him. Now let me ask you a question. Does that characterize your day-to-day -day life? Every decision that you make, it, it, does it reflect the truth that you were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever? It doesn't, does it? I'll be honest, it, it doesn't in my life. You see, we flip this on its head and try to bring God down and exalt ourselves. You see, the mantra of your life and my life in the flesh is far too often that we exist to glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves as long as we possibly can, isn't it? That's, that's how we live our lives. And you know, it makes sense that the world lives that way because given their worldview, as Chad said last week, there is no purpose or meaning to human life. There is no reason for why we exist. So you might as well live as if the greatest end is your pleasure. It's all about you. But see, the sad thing to me is that we as Christians do the exact same thing. Even though we know that God is the one who created us, we have an origin and we also have an end that we will be um, living all the rest of our days to the praise of his glorious grace. Even though we know that, it doesn't affect the way that we live. It doesn't affect the way that we live at all. And see, what the Bible tells us, what the Bible tells us is that the only way that we can find lasting gain in this life is if we live all of life in every area as if every aspect of life is just a means to the great end of glorifying God. That's how we get lasting gain in our lives. But guess what? Like we said, we don't live that way, do we? We, again, flip this on its head, and instead of making God the great end of everything we do, 
Instead of seeing God as the end and everything in our life as the means to that end, we then say, God, we want something from you. We want not you, but the good gifts that you can give us. So now all of a sudden, God has become the means to something else. You see how we do this? Let me give you, let me give you an example. Here's how we do it. We go to church like we're doing this morning. We read our Bibles throughout the week. We pray. We try to evangelize when an opportunity comes up. We tithe. We, we try to lead good moral lives and work hard while we're on the job. And, and see, here's our expectation, though. Lord, I'm doing all these things for you. Now you've got to give me what I want in return. You've got to give me the family of I, I've always wanted, the job that I've always wanted, the education I've always wanted, the approval from other people I've always wanted, the house I've always wanted, the health I've always wanted, the marriage I've always wanted, the kids I've always wanted, the retirement I've always wanted. And the reason that I know that we use God to get these things is because as soon as we think we're not going to get it, we stop doing what we know we're supposed to. We stop praying. We stop going to church. We stop communing um, with other believers. We stop reading our Bible. We just slack off. You see what this tells us about ourselves? We don't really want God, do we? We want the good gifts that he can give us. And what the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to force us to face the reality that living life this way is meaningless. We're going to see it come up again and again in this book. It's vanity of vanities. It profits us nothing. It's a chasing after the wind. Literally what that means is it's like trying to herd the wind as a cowboy would, would herd cattle. Good luck doing that. Now I don't know about you, but I want my life to count. Does anybody here want, here want their life to count for nothing? No, we want our life to count. We want it to matter. We want to know that we are storing up lasting treasure for ourselves and how we spend our time and our talent and our treasure. I'm going to venture a guess that none of us wants to get to the, our deathbed and learn that everything that we spend our whole lives living for ends today. God forbid that that should happen to any of us. So the question then naturally becomes, how do we find lasting gain in this life? We all want it, so how do we get it? And thankfully in our text this morning, the preacher of Ecclesiastes addresses this extremely important question. And, and in so doing, to give you a little outline here, he gives us four ways we cannot find lasting gain and one way we can find lasting gain. Four ways we cannot find lasting gain and one way we can find lasting gain. So first, let's look at the four ways we cannot find lasting gain. First, not through wisdom or education. Not through wisdom or education. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 with me. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
So the first place the preacher tells us that we can't look for lasting gain is wisdom or education. And let's be honest, in our day and age, this is a huge temptation, isn't it? Because everywhere we look, we're being told that education is the answer to every problem that we have. Let me give you an example. I was reading an article online this past week, uh, and it was written by a guy who is working diligently to end gang violence. It's a noble, noble uh, uh, end, right? He's trying to do something noble here. And he says that the answer, I quote, is the long-term answer to gang violence requires investing in job training and education. The long-term answer to gang violence requires investing in job training and education. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get up in arms and be like, yeah, education's important, and why are you? Of course, as Christians, we know education is important, right? We're, the church is to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. Most of the, the huge medieval universities that were established were established by who? The church, and most of the great um, universities in our very own nation, which have now been taken away from us, were founded originally by who? The church. So I'm not saying that education is bad. It, it's good. Um, and we need to have job training and education available for those who are stuck in the gangs but want to get out. I'm not disagreeing with that. But here's my problem with this statement. To say that education will end the problem of gang violence is absurd. It's absurd because ultimately the problem isn't a lack of job training, isn't it? Does that contribute? Of course. Does lack of family structure contribute? Of course. But it's ultimately not a lack of knowledge, is it? What is it? It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. What does James chapter 4, 1 through 2 tell us? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now listen to this. You desire and do not have so you murder. Now hear me out. Let's do all we can to end gang violence, but let's not be deceived and be so naive as to think that education will ultimately end the problem. And that's not the only place we run into this lie, is it? Now, every time you drive through a fast food restaurant, you're confronted with this lie as well. Have you noticed, if you look at the menu, I remember when this just started to come out, right next to every item on the menu is what? The calorie count, right? Tells you how many calories each item is. Now, what's the rationale behind that? Well, if people understood how many calories they were consuming, since obesity is on the rise, then maybe they would be more selective about what they choose to put in their mouth. And from all of the research that's been done, the, the results show that while it has um, raised consumer awareness, we now, we now know how many calories are in that Big Mac, it hasn't changed our eating habits at all. It's had virtually no effect whatsoever on how we eat. Zero. I, and I, I'm a testimony right here. Now I drive through and go, oh, that's how many calories that is. I'm going to get the same thing. So you see, that's just one example of how education didn't solve the problem, did it? It, it hasn't solved the problem. And all the people that pushed for this legislation to get passed are distraught and like, oh, man, we don't understand. We, and, and what does the preacher say about it? You can't make straight what is crooked. And we see this in our own life, don't we? We see... Um, that, that education and more knowledge won't solve the problem. Uh, look at how, all those marriage books and seminar, so, seminars that you've attended. Have they perfected your marriage yet? All those parenting books that you've read, all the DVDs on parenting that you've watched about parenting, have they perfected your kids yet? No. Have all those weight loss gimmicks produced any lasting results for you? Have all those Bible studies made you perfectly holy yet? 
They haven't, have they? You see, what the preacher is saying is that the more education and wisdom you acquire apart from God, the more sad and distraught you become. See, it's not just that education isn't the answer. It's that the more education and knowledge and wisdom you have, the more distraught you become by what, by what you see in the world because you'll know what needs to change, but you don't have the power to do it. What is crooked cannot be made straight. So we can't expect to find lasting gain through wisdom or education. Secondly, we can't expect to find lasting gain through pleasure. We can't expect to find lasting gain through pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 with me. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Now the second lie that the preacher wants to expose for us and takes head on is the lie that pleasure can give us lasting gain. And let's be honest, after just hearing that education and wisdom aren't going get, to get us anywhere, it's like, well shoot, let's just throw reason to the wind and let's expose ourselves to as many pleasures as we possibly can, right? So it's super popular in our day and age to approach life this way. This way. So the preacher says, alright, let's do an experiment here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose myself to every possible pleasure I can imagine. First, he says he pursues laughter. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love to laugh. Anybody else? I love comedy and humor and funny movies and witty comments. I love all of it. I love to laugh. Few things better, in my opinion, than a, than a deep belly laugh. But you know what the preacher says about it? He says, it's mad. It's absurd. And guess what? He's right. I mean, seriously, experiment for yourself. Next time you find yourself just lost in laughter, kind of step back in your mind and go, why am I laughing at this? <laughs> and you'll find two things. First of all, you'll find that you just ruined the laughing experience. Um, and second of all, the re you'll find that the reason that happened is because you never really had a good reason for laughing in the first place. You didn't. You see, what the preacher is saying is the only gain that we really get from laughter is, is like wine. It distracts us from our troubles, but it doesn't solve them for us. It's just a distraction. So it doesn't give us any lasting gain. Laughter doesn't, doesn't cut it. Okay, well, let's try the next pleasure then. Oh, I said just like wine, and I haven't even gotten to wine yet. Anyway, now we're going to look at wine. So he says, all right, First of all, he's, he's not talking about drunkenness, just to get that off the table. We know that because he says what? 
we know, he says, that wisdom was still guiding me. So he wasn't giving, been gi- giving over to drunkenness. And, and we know that he wants to experiment with wine because Psalm 104.15 says that God made wine to gladden the heart of man. And so he wants to see what it'll do for him. And what he finds is it doesn't give him any lasting benefit. It's like laughter. Distracts me for a while, tastes pretty good, but it doesn't really give me any lasting gain at all. Okay, so let's move on to the next pleasure. And essentially what he does here is he builds himself a bunch of incredible houses. And, and houses really isn't even the right term. He's building palaces here. I mean, we literally think like the Taj Mahal. Think this kind of stuff. We, we rarely have categories uh, for, for thinking about this. But he says to himself, maybe that'll make me happy. If I build a bunch of palaces, maybe that'll make me happy. And we can, we can relate to this, can't we? As Americans, we love our houses, don't we? It's, it's one of the rights to pursuing um, happiness, isn't it? I mean, we need, we need to be able to own our own home. We almost see it as a right now, don't we? I have the right to own my own home. The economy kind of destroyed that for us. But I, I am amazed at how obsessed we are with our homes. You want to know how it shows up? It shows up in the fact that we have a channel designated 24-7 to feed our home idolatry. HGTV, right? Homes and Gardens, television. And we have whole magazines. Not just one whole magazine, but multiple whole magazines. Now, just so you know, I had to look these up. There's traditional home and country home and better homes and gardens and dwell magazine. I mean, from cover to cover, the express intent is to make you just lust after these homes. Some of the pictures are so beautiful, it makes you want to cry, like, why don't I have a house like that? But so we can understand the, the, the pursuit to find lasting gain in building a house, right? But again, our homes, our houses, aren't a fraction of how nice um, the preacher's houses were. I mean, these were palaces. Think about this. He's growing national forests in his backyard. It's pretty much what he's doing. What does he say? He says, I built vineyards and gardens and parks and orchards and pools and whole forests. I mean, it must have been absolutely breathtaking. So he builds all of this, and after he's got it all built and he sits back and looks at it, what's his assessment? He says, you know, it brought me pleasure for a little while. Made me feel pretty good. Look at, look at all I've done. But you know what? The newness of it wore off and it got kind of old. So I got to do something else. So then what does he do? Well, then he turns to fill up this incredible spread that he's built with slaves and animals and nice furniture and dishes and beautiful art and singers and prostitutes so that he'll have beautiful surroundings and enough people to enjoy it all with. And you know what? We really aren't all that different, are we? We're we're, we're just as consumeristic as the preacher is. We strive to get the nice car The boat, the ATVs, the 50-inch plasma, the iPod, the Xbox, the best music, the fastest computer, the pool, the best kitchen appliances, all our favorite toys, and then a bunch of good-looking friends to enjoy it all with us, right? I know that's why my friends want me to hang out with them. You see, the preacher was just as susceptible to consumerism as us, so he gave himself over it, over to it, and said, look, look, what it, look what it got me. And, and just so you know, you're thinking, well, he doesn't have all the stuff that I want. Listen, he says that he didn't just keep up with the Joneses. He said he surpassed the Joneses. He became the new standard by which everybody else compared themselves. He was the ultimate consumer. And what's his conclusion? His conclusion is that, yeah, my heart found pleasure in it for a while. It was the fruit of my toil. 
But guess what? After time, it just got boring. The newness of it wore off, and I'm like, i got to move on to something else. When he sat back and considered what his hands had done and all the energy he had expended to acquire it, he came to the conclusion that it all meant nothing. There's no lasting gain to be found there. It was just a chasing after the wind. So wisdom can't give us lasting gain. Pleasure can't give us lasting gain. And thirdly, the the preacher tells us that we can't look for lasting gain through seeking the benefits of living wisely. Not through seeking the benefits of living wisely. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 with me. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now the third lie the preacher takes on is the lie that we can find lasting gain through the benefits of living wisely. And again, we understand this, don't we? Right now, in our day and age, it's huge to, to eat healthy and go green and exercise and wear seatbelts and save money and raise awareness and look both ways before we cross the street and do everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint, right? I mean, we're all about that stuff. And guess what the preacher has to say about it? He says, actually, those are good things. It's good, it's better to live wisely than to live foolishly. Why? Because the fool walks around and stumbles in the dark. He doesn't even know what he's doing. But the fool is able to see and navigate life's problems as they come along. What what is he saying? He's saying, listen, God has created us to live wisely. So generally speaking, if we live wisely, then things will generally go better for us. Not, Not across the board is that true. Just look at the book of Job. And But on the flip side, if we live foolishly, generally speaking, life will go ill for us. He's saying that's, that's the way God has set up this world. But then he goes on to observe that even here, the gain is only temporary and not lasting. He says both I and the fool are still going to end up dead. The wise man will eat healthy and the fool will be a glutton. But guess what? They'll both die. The wise man will exercise and the fool will not. But guess what? They'll both die. The wise man will wear his seatbelt and the fool will not. But guess what? Eventually, they're both going to die. You see, reality is that death is the great leveler. And, and so when we die, no matter what discrepancies and differences there were between the wise man and the foolish man, at death, they're equalized. They're both six feet underground pushing up da- daisies. So the preacher says, what's the point? Both the fool and the wise man will be long forgotten. So even though there's some gain in living wisely now, long term doesn't really matter. And it's at this point that the, we see the preacher get to the point where he's grievous. He's grieved. In fact, he's so grieved that he says something shocking. What does he say? I hated life. I hate it. I see now that there's no point to it. 
And so I hate life. So wisdom can't give us lasting gain. Pleasure can't give us lasting gain. Seeking the benefits of living wisely can't give us lasting gain. And finally, we can't find lasting gain through working hard for possessions. We can't find lasting gain through working hard for possessions. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 through 23 with me. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now this is the fourth and final lie that the preacher takes head on, and he says he wants to expose for us the lie that lasting gain can be found through working hard for possessions. And the preacher um, has actually reached the point now where he says, not only did I hate my life, I hate my toil. He hates his work. And why does he say that? He says he hates his work because he realizes that once he's dead, everything he worked for will be given to someone else. And guess what? I don't know whether that person is going to steward those resources wisely or foolishly. And that's frustrating to me. That's what he's saying. Now, I think the, the people in this congregation that can get this most easily are the fathers in here who have daughters. Fathers, just for a moment, think about your daughters. Here you get this wonderful gift from God, this wonderful little girl, and you spend years and years of your life, and literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, no joke, hundreds of thousands of dollars in raising this girl, and just when she gets to the point of womanhood, and she really starts to get interesting, and you're bonding with her, and you see all this fruit that God is bringing about in her life, what happens? Some young guy comes along who thinks he knows everything, asks for her hands in, hand in marriage, and they go off and, and get married. And guess what? All the fruit that you've toiled for, all the ways that you've prepared her and made her into this wonderful woman, he now gets to enjoy the fruit of it. And guess what? He may be the seemingly best guy in the world, but only time will tell whether he's going to steward your daughter wisely or foolishly. And all the men, all the fathers with daughters in the congregation said, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's frustrating, isn't it? And that's what he's saying is, that's the same thing with our work. The businesses that we start, the money that we amass, the possessions that we hand off to them, our, our offspring, we don't know whether they're going to steward it wisely or foolishly. We don't. We can try to do our best, but we ultimately don't know. And so the preacher says, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point of, of all the hard work and all the worry and the frustration and the sleepless nights worrying about what's going to... We don't know how things will pan out in this life. and There's nothing that's certain, so I don't see what the point is. Now, you see what the preacher has done here? He's just stripped us of everything, hasn't he? he he's just stripped us of all of the false hopes and dreams and lies that we put our, our hope and trust in. He stripped us of everything. Wisdom and education won't last. Pleasure won't last. The benefits of living wisely won't last. And working hard for possessions won't last either. You see, in the end, all our toil under the sun will profit us 
nothing. That's reality. It's all a big goose egg. It's a big zero. So let me ask you something. You hear this. Do you actually believe it? <laughs> Do you believe it? This is, this is what God's word says about us trying to live life apart from God. It's meaningless. And see, if you actually believe this, you'll be despairing like the preacher was. You'll be despairing of life. You'll be hating your life. You'll be depressed and give yourself over to despair because you see that there's no lasting gain in this life. There's no lasting gain at all. It's an encouraging message this morning, isn't it? I want you guys, before you go to work, to read this, this passage of Ecclesiastes and then go, yeah, let's go to work, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, you've heard of motivational speakers? The preacher of Ecclesiastes is the ultimate demotivational speaker. But you see why he's doing, he's trying to get you to step back and, and assess, why am I doing all of this? He wants you to do it now rather than later. And ultimately what I hope you're realizing is that this message, this challenge isn't coming ultimately from me or from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. It's ultimately coming from God. You see, God is weighing your life and telling you that if you live apart from him and pursue wisdom or pleasure or the benefits of living wisely or working hard for possessions, it amounts to nothing. Nothing. Okay, so I hit you hard enough with the bad news because really that's the main thrust of this passage. All right, we've got one more point left, right? I said there's four ways we cannot have lasting gain. Now the preacher turns to the one way we can find lasting gain. The one way we can find lasting gain. And what does the preacher tell us? Look at the very last section, chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 with me. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now I want you to notice something here. The preacher says we need two things in order to um, find lasting gain. Two things. First of all, he says we actually need God's good gifts to be enjoyed. Right? In order to enjoy something, you actually have to possess it. Now who gives us these good gifts? What does the preacher say? He says they come from the hand of God. God is the one who gives these gifts out. He gives it to believers and unbelievers alike, right? Sometimes the believers, the unbelievers seem to get more than us as believers. Isn't that true? There's whole psalms written about that. Why, O oh Lord, are you blessing, all, giving them all this stuff? So first of all, we have to receive God's good gifts. We have to possess those, food and drink and toil. But secondly, we also need the ability to enjoy those gifts. It's not just enough to possess the gifts, we actually have to receive the ability to be able to enjoy them. Here's a, here's a good example. Let's say that um, before the sermon started, I brought 200 or so cans of peaches, not the kind that you can pop open, but the kind that require a can opener, and I gave each one of you a can of peaches before the sermon started. And I said, all right, as I preach, I want you to enjoy those peaches. Now you're going to sit there and go, what are you talking about? It's a can of peaches. We can't open it. We need a, you know, some of you might cut your fingers open trying to cut it open with your pocket knife. But see, it's not just enough to have the can of peaches to enjoy them, is it? You've got to have the can opener. And what the preacher is saying, it's the same way with all of the good things that God gives us in this life. It's not just enough to possess them. We also have to be given the ability to enjoy them. So then the question that naturally follows is, 
Who does God give the ability to enjoy these good gifts? Who does God give the ability to? And what does the preacher tell us? He says in verses 25 and 26 that God gives this ability to those who are with them and to those, I'm sorry, those who are with him and please him. He gives this ability to enjoy the good gifts to those who are with him and please him. So who is that? Is that you and me? No, that can't be us, right? Because what did we do in the garden? We turned our backs on God. We sinned against God. We left God. We ran from him. He had to come and find us. We sought to to use him to get what we wanted. We wanted to set ourselves up as God and take his place. And so what does God do in response? He kicks us out of the garden. He curses us and our toil and our work for the rest of the days of our life. And one day he says that we will die physically. And he curses us. That's what happens. So we certainly aren't the ones who please God. And we're not those who are with him at all, right? And so we owe God um, this debt. We owe God this incredible debt. It's not just that our lives don't have meaning. It's that we owe God an infinite debt And all we have at our disposal to pay this infinite debt is finite resources. Now do the math on that one for me. Can you pay an infinite debt with finite resources? No, you can't. So what's the penalty for not being able to make the payment that we owe God? Eternal punishment. Infinite, eternal punishment. So to add insult to injury, not only do our lives gain us nothing of lasting value, but once our lives are over, we'll spend eternity suffering under the wrath of a just, righteous, holy, sovereign God. So you see how bad the bad news is? It's not just that we don't have meaning in our lives. We're also under the wrath of an almighty God. So now you see why the preacher was despairing of life and hating his work and hating everything. But you know what the good news is? That the story doesn't end there. It's not the end of the story for us. Though it would be just for God to close the curtains of the play and say, that's it, everyone's going to hell. He doesn't. The divine drama continues when God the Father sends God the Son to come and become one of us, to live on this broken planet, to become a man. He sends Jesus to be born as a baby and to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see, Jesus isn't just the wisest man who ever lived. He is wisdom itself. And he was the perfectly wise man in our place that God required us to be. He did that in in our place. And throughout his entire life, Jesus perfectly enjoyed all of the good gifts that God gave him. And though Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, he never sought pleasure in God's good gifts apart from God. And he did so perfectly in our place. He did it for you and he did it for me. And as Jesus grew up, he worked as a carpenter and a teacher and a miracle worker. You see, Jesus was the perfect working man in our place. He fulfilled his vocation perfectly in all the ways that you and I fail to. Don't you see, Jesus came not to do this for himself. He did it for you and for me. Hear this. Jesus is the one man who was perfectly with God and perfectly pleased God. 
And when we look to Jesus and we trust in Jesus and put our faith and hope in Jesus, God credits all that Jesus accomplished to our account. He takes that infinite debt and puts it on Jesus on the cross and Jesus bears that load in our place, bears the load of our sins and our guilt. And he says, that's been paid now in full. And all that Jesus accomplished is then given to us so that we're not no longer in debt, but we now actually have a surplus. We have all that we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, as those who are now united to God in Jesus, we, us, are with God and please God through Jesus. We're his children. And so what that means for us, because of this incredible truth of the gospel, we are now those whom God not only gives his good gifts to, of work and of drink and of food. I'm not, talking, I'm not preaching health, wealth, and prosperity here. I'm saying he's going to give you the essentials, these good gifts that he's given, that he's created for us to enjoy, and then he also gives us the ability to enjoy them. That's the whole point, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus has redeemed every area of life for us. We try to compartmentalize it and say, oh, I have this private relationship with Jesus, and I go to church, and I I pray when I'm at home. This relationship affects everything. And trust me, you want it to affect everything. So let it affect everything. We can now approach wisdom and education and pleasure and living wisely and working hard knowing that all of that now has meaning and significance and gain for us because all is done with God to please God for the glory of God. Therefore, we can eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil as we live this life with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is overwhelming to us the grace that you show us. We acknowledge that we have been those who hated you, who wanted to take your place, who wanted to overthrow your rule and reign and exalt ourselves and live to enjoy ourselves as long as we possibly can. And Father, we we acknowledge that that incurred an infinite debt that we couldn't pay. And all of our, our life, all of our striving to find lasting gain in this life was futile. So we were lost and without hope in the world under the power of Satan and living according to this present age. And Father, it's when we were like that that Jesus invaded our world. And he came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose, and he ascended to your right hand. And, and all that he has accomplished has been accredited to us. All of it. So now we can receive the good gifts that you give us, and we can enjoy them. We see, Father, that you are now recreating all things. You're undoing what we have done in the fall and in our sinfulness. And you're making all things new for us so that we can now enjoy our simple little job that seems so mundane. We can enjoy it because it's done to the praise of your glorious grace. And we can enjoy whatever little food that we have because we see it's a gift from you and we eat it with you and to the praise of your glorious grace. And Lord, we can live wisely 
Because we know that we're reflecting the character of our Heavenly Father. Father, we're so thankful that you have rescued us, not only from our sin, which is incredible, but also from a meaningless life and giving us an eternal perspective that we're storing up treasure for ourselves in how we use these good gifts you give us. And that is lasting value. We're storing up eternal treasure for ourselves. We're so thankful for this. And we love you. And we rejoice in Jesus. And we ask it in his great name. Amen.